0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And
2: welcome to episode 73 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Corey Doctorow. He serves as the co-editor of Boing Boing, one of the internet's most popular blogs and is a prominent activist in favor of liberalizing copyright laws. His novels include Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Little Brother, and For the Win. His latest novel, Pirate Cinema, is about a group of tech-savvy young runaways who attempt to take on the entertainment industry.
1: Then stick around after the interview as we discuss sex and science fiction with guest geek Laura G. Duncan.
2: All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Cory Doctorow. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so first of all, everyone just wants
3: us to ask you what you think of Disney acquiring Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of bummed about it. It just seems to me that uh, we've entered this kind of winner-take-all world where things that are a little bit successful become very successful and then become mega-successes and then merge with all the other mega-successes. I don't know. It feels like the finance industry or something to me, and it seems like it's somehow intimately related to it this seems like a finance driven decision rather than artistic driven decision or a creative decision one of the things that freaks me out is that any publicly traded corporation that acquires an asset for four billion dollars is going to be as risk averse as possible about that asset you know not to say that you know lucas was a real risk taker But I think that Disney has always been at its best when it took risks and that one of the downsides to the increasingly high stakes associated with each individual project, you know, the businesses may have always been high stakes businesses, but now every project is a high stakes project is that they're super risk averse. They kind of always end up acting like dicks. That seems like a universal outcome of having billions of dollars at stake is that anytime anyone suggests doing anything that might have a bad outcome you know, your risk management people and your lawyers come along and say, no, you're absolutely obliged to act like a total asshole to these people, just in case it turns out that they might cost you money down the road, because there's so much at stake here. It just feels like something that is just going to be about making sequels to sequels to sequels to adaptations to sequels, as opposed to inventing new cool stuff.
2: Hmm. I mean, someone on our Twitter was pointing out that Disney now owns Star Wars, Pixar, Marvel and all the Disney stuff. It's sort of the collective happy childhood memories of an entire several generations
3: actually. Yeah, I'm less worried about that. I'm I'm actually totally non-precious about that. I mean, your your memories are your memories and I'm totally unsympathetic to people who say that having seen the crappy prequels to Star Wars that their enjoyment of the first 3 have gone down. I you know, to me the thing that actually reduced my enjoyment of star wars and the two sequels was just watching them as an adult instead of a kid and i realized that a lot of the things that i thought of as really interesting and great were either cliches or um that they had a superficial appeal that the more you thought about them the dumber they got i'm more bothered about the fact that if you look at disney's pattern of acquisitions they're acting like procter gamble they're acting like a packaged goods company like in fact less innovative than a packaged goods company like basically their whole thing is about amassing huge amounts of capital, putting them into brands. That is to say, things that already have understood audiences and understood profiles. And then doing as little as possible to kind of upset the apple cart. In fact, I think they're more likely to try and keep all of those things intact and to not ever upset or worry the people who grew up on them because basically their whole idea is to maximize the amount of revenue they can get from you by continuing to spin out infinite variations on the theme of whatever it was you liked last time.
2: I mean, it seems like going back to down out in the Magic Kingdom, you've had sort of a love-hate
3: relationship with Disney. Is any of that love still there, or is it all pretty much? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I always say with Disney, I love the sin and I hate the sinner. (laughs) They produce some amazing media, and the media that they produce that I really love as you will have gathered if you've read the two novels that I wrote or the and the novella that are really about, about Disney parks, Down and Out of the Magic Kingdom, Makers, and There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. The thing that I, they do that I love is their dark rides. I actually think immersive, automated environments are an art form. I don't think many people take them very seriously. I think Disney at its best is taken them more seriously than anyone in the history of the world. And that when they are taking it seriously, they do an incredible job with it. I just think that you know, the rest of their media is a lot less interesting. I continue to be totally blown away by their immersive environments, both the rides and the parks that the rides are in. But I also continue to be absolutely distressed by their legislative agenda and by other elements of their corporate culture. You
1: recently participated in the Humble Bundle, which is this uh, sort of ebook charity program where people can
3: pay whatever they want, and they get a a bundle of ebooks. You want to tell us a little bit about the project? Sure. Well, it comes out of something called the Humble Indie Bundle, which was for video games. When this started in 2010, there was a group of independent video game developers who thought, you know, if we get some of our friends together and we put together a bundle of about six video games uh, without any DRM, and we say to people, you know, you come and you name your own price, and you can also use a slider to designate some or all of the money that you give to charity. And then we'll we'll add some... um, Game like mechanics to the way that the pricing model works. So we'll, for example, we'll, we'll have a leaderboard of the top spenders. We'll show you how people are spending by operating system. We'll break that down in real time so you can really see like how team Mac is performing against team Linux and, and maybe feel some team fellowship there and bid up your team, which I think worked pretty well. And we'll also reserve some of the video games for people who give more than the average, which of course will continually drive the average up. And the first one of those in 2010 did uh, 1.25 million in the first week. They're two week long promotions and closed a little over a million and a half. By the time they hit number seven in 2012, the most recent one, they did four and a half million in the first week and closed nearly $5 million. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's just unheard of. For games that fundamentally, you know, a decade ago, we'd have called them shareware games. And to pull in five million bucks for half a dozen shareware games in in a couple of weeks, unheard of and just amazing. And they trade on a bunch of things. One is the bundle's reputation for excellence. Part of it is the charitable dimension. People do like raising money for charity, and some of it is this game like mechanic for pricing. So we came. To, they came to me because they had. Um, uh, done a bunch of fundraising one of their nominated charities was one that that i've been uh, very closely related to and that that i used to in fact work for a group called the electronic frontier foundation which is a civil rights group they're kind of like the aclu of the internet and eff had been the beneficiary of a lot of donations from humble bundle so much so that one of eff's employees actually left to go work for humble and he happened to be one of my former students richard Escara. He went to Humble and, and they started talking about eBooks. And he got in touch with me and said, you know, would you be interested in helping us do an eBook one? And I said, of course. So I volunteered for them, and I put them together with a bunch of authors and agents, uh, and we filled out a really amazing bundle. And actually, you know, the, one of the things that I find sad but hopeful is that some of the best works that we had chosen for the bundle and that authors and agents had agreed to, the publishers vetoed uh, because only Tor of all the big six publishers would allow us to put their books in the bundle. Everyone else said without DRM, they couldn't let us do it. And that meant that, you know, we had authors who were multiple New York Times number one bestsellers, whose books we couldn't use, even though they wanted them in there. I've since heard from some of those writers that they've gone back to their publishers and said, you know, no more book contracts with you until you let me get a piece of the millions of dollars that are sitting out there waiting for me. Uh, If only I'm willing to sell my books in the way that my audience wants to read them without DRM. And since, of course, DRM doesn't stop piracy because all the DRM is broken, it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems to me like this is a purely ideological decision, and yet this ideology is anything but harmless. It's costing me potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I think that the subsequent bundles are going to be even better. Um, We ended up raising just about $1.25 million, which is a little less but not bad relative to the first of the humble indie bundles. And I really hope that we'll follow in their trajectory and that we'll head up towards those same dizzying $5 million heights within a couple of years. And, um, you know, I'm certainly, I'd be happy to continue to curate these bundles for the gang. I I had a great time doing it.
2: So do you see this sort of model as kind of the future for content distribution, or is it only going to work in these sort of specific circumstances?
3: There's, There's part of the indie bundle that's part of the de facto working Of all digital content distribution today, which is that everybody today is already naming their price for digital media, and that it takes the same number of clicks to pirate media as it does to buy it. That's a recurring motif among people who want to buy things is that the buying process is very cumbersome. You know, for example, for audiobooks, you either have to have an account with Audible, or you need to download Overdrive, no one will just sort of shut up and take your money, right? Like, give me your credit card number, I'll give you an MP3. In this world, everybody is already naming their price, only the only two prices they're now allowed to name are full retail and zero. Nobody's allowed to name a price in between there. And so I think one of the insights of the Humble Bundle is that there actually is a pool of people who would like to name a price halfway in between or somewhere in between. I also think that in a world where all payments are In some sense voluntary in the sense that people could get it without paying for it and the likelihood of them being caught is so small as to be indistinguishable from zero that the strategy that we use for whatever it is we use to get money from audiences that strategy has to revolve around convincing people instead of coercing them because you know we can't coerce them they can always choose to just opt out of the system. And all the strategies we use for convincing are pretty much the opposite of the strategies we use for coercing. Coercing really is uh, only works, you only get efficiency if you coerce people in bulk by making examples of a few transgressors. In other words, you coerce people by putting a couple of offenders' heads on pikes and convincing them that you're such a big, bad troll that unless they opt into the system, that their heads will be up on pikes too. And so that's the opposite way that you convince them that you're the kind of person who they should voluntarily give money to. You you convince them that if they don't give you money, that you're going to come after them tooth and nail. Those aren't the kinds of people people other people want to voluntarily pay. And so whatever it is that people do in the future, it, it won't necessarily be humble bundle or even recognizable as humble bundle. But some of the principles that inform the design of humble bundle will carry over, and those principles will include performing generosity and performing trust in a way that creates reciprocal arrangements with audiences that creates a kind of reciprocating social contract with audiences that causes them to treat you in the way that you've shown them you'd like to be treated and that you're prepared to treat them
2: well yeah and speaking of going after people tooth and nail that brings us to your new novel pirate cinema you want to tell us about that
3: pirate cinema was inspired by a a legislative event in the united kingdom where i live um I'm now, in fact, technically British. I just haven't been issued my accent yet, which is why (laughs) I sound Canadian. But in 2009, they introduced uh, legislation called the Digital Economy Act. And the Digital Economy Act includes something called Three Strikes, which says that if you're accused of three acts of copyright infringement without proof, you and your family get disconnected from the internet. And this legislation was introduced right around the same time that we had a report from our champion for digital inclusion, uh, a woman named Martha Lane Fox, who's government posting is to make sure that everybody in the country has access to the internet. And she commissioned a Cooper study into uh, a follow-up of a trial program where people who lived in government housing and very vulnerable populations in the uh, uh, north where the local economy and industry have collapsed. They followed it up to see what happened when those people were given internet access and compared them to their neighbors who hadn't been given internet access. They had a kind of a naturally occurring control population experiment that they could use to analyze the impact of internet access. And they found that these people who've been given internet access, that everything we use to measure the quality of life went up for them. You know, their kids not only got better grades, but they were more likely to go into post-secondary education and to be socially mobile, that the parents got better jobs and had more disposable income. And so there was better nutrition, that their health outcomes were better. They were less socially isolated. They were more civically engaged and more politically engaged. Really, the whole raft of human experience improves when you give people internet access. And so it follows that when you take away people's internet access, you confiscate those benefits too. And it's bad enough to say, well, if you watch TV the wrong way, we're going to take away your access to civic engagement, education, employment and health. But it's even worse to say, if you live in the same house as someone who is the named subscriber for a DSL modem that has been accused without proof, of being involved in someone, possibly not even someone who lives in your house, watching TV the wrong way. We're going to take away all these benefits. You know, that this was just wildly disproportionate and and really just evil. And it passed without debate because they snuck it into the final session of parliament just before they dissolved the parliament for the election. And it had passed in other countries in the same way. You know, in New Zealand, the way that they passed it was as a a rider to the um, Christchurch earthquake bailout the bill that was passed to free up resources to help save the people dying in the rubble of Christchurch. And they snuck it in there. And so, you know, this made me so furious that I decided I would write a book about it. So I wrote this novel called Pirate Cinema. And it's about a kid who lives in one of these northern towns, these Rust Belt towns, a town called Bradford that was once the, the center of the textiles industry. And his name is Trent, but he calls himself Cecil B. DeVille for Cecil B. DeMille, the, the movie producer. Because he makes movies, but he doesn't make movies the way they did in Spielberg's era, where they had Super 8 cameras, like that Spielberg movie. He didn't make them the way they did in My Boyhood with um, VHS cameras. He makes them the way that you can if you're a kid in the 21st century, namely by downloading other people's movies and recutting them and making new movies out of them. And he's very good at it, and it totally consumes him. And people love what he does, and it's very popular. And like many consumed, passionate adolescents, he gets careless and he forgets to use the proxy that hides his internet identity from the snoopers that are used to catch pirates and disconnect them. And so his family gets disconnected and his dad loses his job and his mom loses her disability benefits and his sister can no longer get the grades that she was getting and probably won't make it into university. And so he's really effectively destroyed his family. He runs away to London the way that the hero of so many British novels do. And he joins a gang, a kind of ha ha only serious youth gang of like anarchist freegan squatters who make their own movies and show them in underground movie theaters not just underground in the sense that you know they're all on the down low and you have to know who to ask and it's all with a wake and a nudge but underground in the sense that they like break into beautiful vaulted brick victorian sewers and turn them into cinemas pirate cinemas and that these screenings become a citywide and then a nationwide phenomenon everyone's doing them everyone's making their own movies but Even though they think that they can no longer engage with the law, that they can just ignore the law, what they discover is that just because they're not interested in the law doesn't mean the law won't take an interest in them. And very soon, the law has gotten much worse to the point where people are going to jail just for downloading, which when I wrote that, that was science fiction. But two or three weeks ago, Japan passed legislation that said that if you download copyright infringing material, you can go to jail for two years, which effectively means if you click the wrong link on YouTube, go to prison. Japan also provides for 10 years in prison if you upload copyright infringing material. And so as these laws get worse, Trent and his friends decide that what they're going to do is, is actually prevent new laws from being passed. And that the way that they're going to do that is by bankrupting the entertainment industry with systematic piracy. So rather than just pirating things in a kind of slapdash way, they're going to pirate the things that cost the movie industry as much money as possible. So when new movies open, they're walking up and down the Ticket line in Leicester Square, which is kind of our answer to Times Square, and walking up to people in line to buy the ticket to the premiere screening. And they're handing them SD cards with copies of the movie on it and, and a note that says, you know, if you buy a ticket, they're just going to use the money to screw up our country. Here's a copy of the movie. Go watch it at home. Make your own mixes and come and show them at one of our showings. And, you know, jalarity ensues. You know, there's clearly the entertainment industry isn't going to take that lying down. And that's when the novel really starts to kick off.
2: And I understand that this uh, these underground showings are an actual phenomenon, and you um, attended some of them. Could you talk about that?
3: Well, there are, yeah, there are underground showings. The pirate cinema movement is real, and I, I, I was in a pirate cinema in a squatted pub in East London, much like the Zero Day, the pub that uh, Trent and his friends live in. And um, one of the people who lived there, Jamie King, who founded a novel distribution company called Voto that distributes science fiction movies online. He actually was a great source for information on the ins and outs of squatting in London. And some of the stories of what happens to these squatters were taken right from his life story.
2: So, I mean, this is a book that could sort of be seen as glorifying teenage runaways, premarital sex, trespassing, recreational drug use, and computer crimes. Did you get any pushback on that or have any misgivings
3: about including any of that? I certainly haven't had any pushback. I mean, this is a book about a kid who lives in an unjust society and who tries to A variety of strategies to deal with it some of them smart some of them not smart and in some cases the not doing the smart thing ends up getting him into a lot of trouble which i think is true to life and you know in the spirit of a lot of good young adult literature so yeah i'm not at all bothered about it i mean certainly i don't think although although some of it is presented as romantic none of the stuff that i think of as a bad idea is presented as a good idea um, it's just presented as the kind of thing that a 17-year-old who is really upset might do. Do you ever get letters from kids who uh, who have been inspired by your books to become hacker or anarchists? All the time. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know. At least hackers and political activists all the time. Uh, my first young adult novel, Little Brother, had an afterword with a bibliography for kids who wanted to get involved in uh, you know learning how, to, how security works, learning how computers work, learning how to program them, learning how to take them apart. Learning how to solve their problems with technology as well as with politics. And the number of kids who've written to me and said that they became programmers after reading that, it's, you know, I couldn't even count them. I've had similar responses to my second young adult novel, For the Win. And and I've also heard from kids who've read Pirate Cinema. Uh, in fact, we published an editorial by one of them on Boing Boing, an anonymous reader who uh, makes her own movies out of uh, Japanese anime and um, who talked about what drives her and and how the book resonated with her.
2: Are any of them publicly identifiable or have any of them started websites or anything that people could go check out?
3: For uh, Little Brother, if you go to the craphound.com slash little brother and just click on the remixes tab, there's a whole ton of these that I've collected over the years.
2: So in pirate cinema, the protagonist Trent writes quote, I realized that the press always asked the same question. So I just flop down on the sofa with my laptop and my headset and take the call. While Jem fed me so much jet fuel, it was a race to see whether I could finish the interview before I lift liftoff and sailed into gabbling, babbling, coffee orbit. Is that how you actually yeah. do interviews?
3: <laughs> uh, a little bit. I mean, you know, my friend Steve Gould, who wrote uh, the novel Jumper, which became the not very good movie Jumper, went on the press tour when the movie came out. And he said, you know, the reason it's called a press tour is because it's like being pressed between two boards. <laughs> um <laughs> And it is true that most of the questions are the same, and I don't mind answering them because I find that talking about the stuff helps me think it through. It's a productive task for me. I do actually really dislike writing out the same answers over and over again. For some reason, typing the same block of text twice feels remarkably wasteful in a way that saying the same thing twice doesn't. Maybe because if you say it lots, it gets better because you can inflect it better and you can practice it. Whereas, If you type the same thing over and over again, I don't think you get better at it. I mean, maybe you get better at typing, but you don't get better at expressing the underlying ideas. So I've often thought that what I might do for the so-called email interviews, which I just hate, I I hate the kind of, well, I've just got a few quick questions for you. And the quick questions are questions that are quick to type, but not quick to (laughs) respond to. Like, um, what is art? What is (laughs) virtue? Um, how should the world be governed? I mean, that is a very quick question, right? (laughs) But not necessarily a quick question to answer. I've often thought that what I might do is take all of the questions I've been asked before in writing and just make them on a a public page. And whenever anyone asks to email interview me, say, you may ask me, say, two questions that aren't in this list. You can use this list as much as you'd like. You can ask me two more, but with the understanding that as soon as I answer them for you, I'm going to add them to that page. Because it just seems to me that a lot of email interviews, the real underlying pitch is, will you write me five short essays that I can publish under my byline? Hmm. Well, and what you just described, that's what Trent does mm-hmm. in the novel. So yeah, so you yeah, presume... it's it's it's, it's, I th- it's a, if it's a good idea in real life, it's a good idea to beta test in fiction. Hmm. Uh, so you just wrapped up your book tour. Do you, do you have any funny stories uh, from the tour that you want to share? I'm trying to think of any particularly funny stories. I mean, I've I've had funny road stories before. I am. Um, I got interviewed once when I was on tour with, uh, for the win, I was in San Francisco and I had an interview scheduled at 5. AM with a British newspaper. My friend, Alex Kratosky was writing for the independent in London. And, um, you know, obviously 5. AM on the West coast is a reasonable hour. in in London, I'd had room service, bring up breakfast and I had to get dressed while I was talking to her because, um, I had to get out of the hotel right after we were done and go to the airport. And so, um, I answered, you know, her Skype call sitting down at my desk, still not dressed. And she said, you're naked. And I went, Oh (laughs) shit, the camera's on. I was just on (laughs) the desk. So it was just from the halfway up my chest up. It wasn't anything that you wouldn't (laughs) see on on a beach, certainly. And it wasn't, wasn't anything particularly embarrassing except that I'd answer the phone, the video phone naked, essentially. And so (laughs) I went and turned the camera off and I kept walking around the room and getting dressed and eating my breakfast and answering her questions and carrying the laptop around as I did. And then I, was finally dressed and I'd eaten my breakfast. And we were finishing up the interview and I sat down again and put the laptop down again and looked and the camera light was still on. Hmm. And I said, Alex, has the camera been on the whole time? And she said, yeah, I didn't want to embarrass you. And I'm like, you could have just told me. <laughs> and, and again, she's a very good friend. She's a good friend of my wife. We, she stays, she's staying over at our place. She see me get out of the bathroom with a towel around my waist. I'm sure she didn't see anything much ruder than that, but it was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> and then the other one was, I did a signing in Austin and I think it was also on the For the Wind tour. And uh, a guy came up and I said, so uh, what can I write in in your book? And he said, um, drama Hobbit. And I said, drama Hobbit. <laughs> and he said, yeah, drama Hobbit. So I, I was like, really? And he said, like, yeah, drama Hobbit. And so I drew this drama hobbit like a hobbit that was very dramatic you know a little kind of guy with a pointy hat and pointy ears and furry feet and a kind of knife and he was he had drama lines coming out of him which you know in <laughs> hindsight probably looked a bit like stink lines and i handed the book to him and he said what's that and i said it's a drama hobbit and he said no 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 draw Mohammed. it was oh. <laughs> drama it was during the danish cartoon thing and so I've always wanted to do a drama Hobbit week (laughs) where everybody draws the most dramatic Hobbits they can, but I've I've yet to convince anyone else that it would be a good idea.
1: Uh, So you have a new nonfiction book uh, coming out called uh, Information
3: Doesn't Want to Be Free. Uh, You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, my agent has just um, started to get offers on it because he just started shopping it. And I haven't heard much from him because he lives in New Jersey and has no power or water Mm, or heat and has been talking about barbecuing his cats. but. As far as I know, that sales process is in the offing and uh, the book will be out at some point. And it's a, a short kind of business book about copyright. And it's meant to be three sensible things that you can take into your understanding of copyright as you structure your business around the digital age. And the, the first thing is that if you let someone else put a lock on your file and if that person doesn't give you the key, that lock can't be there for your benefit. That lock will eventually be used against you. And so, for example, um, Apple and Audible won't allow you to sell audiobooks without their DRM on it, without their digital lock on it. And because it's illegal to remove a digital lock, what that's really doing is tying all of your customers as someone who makes audiobooks to their platform. And so if later on someone has a better platform, what you are doing is, guessing or hoping or betting that all the people who've ever bought your audiobooks in the old platform follow you to the new one even though it means either maintaining two separate management tools to manage their library or throwing away all the old audiobooks including the ones you sold them. So, as someone who invests in making this media, if you're a publisher or a studio or a newspaper or a record label, you really need to focus on making sure that you're not handing control over your business To a company who doesn't really contribute to the business, they just put locks on it. Uh, The next piece of advice is that although fame won't make you rich, you can't get rich in the arts without fame. That On the one hand, there are lots of people whose works have been widely downloaded and who didn't make any money from it. But all the people who made money in the arts made money by being widely known to their audiences. And that the internet allows us... To have all kinds of paths to have our work discovered and shared among audiences and promoted within those audiences. It's still up to us to figure out how to turn that into money. But without the fame, you don't even have the opportunity to do that. And that the copyright laws that we've been agitating for, that the um, entertainment industry has been agitating for, particularly the ones that make it more expensive to operate any of these services like Blogger or Google or Facebook or YouTube, because they require that you pay unimaginable armies of lawyers to make sure that nothing uploaded infringes on copyright that what those end up doing is putting independent distribution and independent audience discovery outside of the reach of individual artists such that you always have to sign up with a label or a studio or a publisher to get a decent deal or to reach an audience at all and that when they control all the distribution channels and all the audience discovery and audience interaction channels that they can basically command incredibly abusive terms from the artists that they deal with. And so it's really in, in artists' interest that the intermediaries, that the people who sit between us and our audiences have low barriers to entry so that they're continuously being disrupted and there are lots of new businesses entering all the time vying for our business. And then the third one is that information doesn't want to be free, but people do. And that when we focus on the question of information when we make internet policy instead of recognizing that as you see in pirate cinema that the internet is really fundamentally about everything we do in the 21st century not just how we entertain ourselves that we ended up putting everyone at risk that you know designing devices for example to prevent copying involves designing devices that hide things from their users right you can't design a device that when you say copy the file please hal And it says, I can't let you do that, Dave. You can't design that device in a way that's effective if there's a program called HAL 9000 on the desktop that you can just drag into the trash. So it has to be able to hide programs and processes from users. And once you start doing that, once you start designing devices so that they hide things from their owners, you get into really serious trouble because the devices that we use, well, we we use them for everything. They're not just our entertainment tools. They're how we live our whole lives. And they know lots of things about us they know where we are and who we talk to and where we've been and they they know all of the the secrets of our lives and so we really want to be sure that they're honest servants and that they're not um hiding things from us and that they're not disobeying us when we tell them to do things
2: so i saw that amanda palmer wrote an introduction to that book
3: yeah and so did neil gaiman
2: yeah and, and there was Recently, this big brouhaha online about the way that Amanda handled her Kickstarter campaign. I was just wondering Mm -hmm. if you followed that, if you had any
3: take on that. Yeah, I was on tour when that happened. I have to say that I didn't um, really understand the brouhaha particularly. It seems to me that what she wanted was to allow people in different cities who had bands and who loved her music to come and perform with her. In the same way that sometimes authors who are coming to town will say to their publicists, you know, there's this other author who's not as well known as me, but whose work I really admire. Maybe that author would like to interview me on stage. And I've done a ton of those gigs, and I've done them in the other direction too. And it's often the case that when an author is brought to town, they get paid for it, or at the very least, they're selling a book. And the author who's the kind of junior partner in that, they do it not for money they do it because it's for them it's an opportunity to i guess ride on the other author's coattails a bit and also it's a mutual aid situation i'll help you a little and you'll help me a little i don't doubt that amanda could have paid for musicians to go around with her or could have arranged things so that she didn't need as many musicians Um, but i think that what she did she did from a fairly generous impulse And that the people who complained about how she was organizing that part of her business weren't the people who uh, she was nominally exploiting. It wasn't like there were people who showed up to perform with Amanda Palmer, went backstage afterwards, saw her, you know, lying in a bathtub (laughs) full of $100 bills and went, oh my God, I've been robbed. They were instead people who, when Amanda announced I would like to get some local performers to come up on stage with me so I can promote these people to the audiences that come out to my gigs and so that we can all perform together, we can play together. Those people jumped at the opportunity. They even queued up to audition for that opportunity and competed for the chance to be on stage at an Amanda Palmer gig and to be within the kind of um, penumbra of her performance. The thing that's confusing about the arts is that it's both a business and a cultural activity. And there's lots of things that we do in the arts that are not economically rational. You know, I have neglected my own work, rather a lot, in fact, to do things like read young writers' books so that I could write reviews and blurbs for them, sometimes dropping everything to get a blurb in on time for an author that I really believed in. I didn't have any rational expectation of making money from that. And the author who asked me was going to make money directly as a result, or at least believe that they would make money directly as a result of my writing the blurb. And the reason I did that was not a commercial reason. The reason I did it was a cultural reason. It's because the arts consist of a cultural conversation as well as a series of economic transactions. And those can't be interrogated according to the same criteria. It's not to say that you can't do the wrong thing in a cultural context, but something that might seem wrong or exploitative in a economic context in many cases i think looks great and right in a cultural context
1: another new book you have that came out recently is uh, rapture of the nerds uh, which is an adult sf novel you wrote with charles
3: strass uh, you want to tell us about that sure well charlie and i we took about 7 years writing that one we start it started as a pair of novellas the first one published on sci-fi.com the second one published in infinite matrix and also in luander's short lived novella zine called Argo And uh, the first one was called uh, Jury Service in the Second Appeals Court. And they're books about the singularity, but they're books about what happens to the people left behind after the singularity. And they're kind of the inverse of the left behind novels about the rapture, about, you know, they're these fundamentalist Christian religious adventure novels called the Left Behind series that are tremendous bestsellers. And they're about the lives of the sinners who are left behind on earth after the final trumpet blows and all the godly people are sucked up to heaven, leaving nothing behind but the godless. And uh, in our world, all of the people who are rational and godless and um, secular and technophilic get sucked up into the cloud. Their brains get uploaded to a giant computer literally in the sky. The bones of the solar system have been taken apart and reassembled into a huge Dyson sphere around the sun with only one hole in it that tracks the Earth like a lighthouse beam. And the people who are left behind are people who, because of religious conviction or because of suspicion of technology, refuse to send their brains up to the cloud. It's a kind of comic adventure about one of those people, a guy named Hugh, who's a Welsh potter and technology hater, who is delighted to find himself chosen for jury service to evaluate a new technology that's been sent down from the cloud, from the post-human intelligence of the cloud, to Earth, and that some people have actually assembled and he gets to choose whether or not or help choose whether or not that technology will be allowed. And uh, from there, things get very funny and very weird and very madcap. He's a kind of rinse figure who runs all around the world and gets entangled in all these conspiracies. So the first two novellas were really well received and Tor asked us if we would be interested in adapting them to a novel. So we wrote a third novella that's longer than the first two put together and then did a complete rewrite of all of them to make them fit into one book. And that's Rapture of the Nerds. Uh, It came out in September and did very well, I think.
2: So I heard you say that this book kind of charts your change in perspective from being very optimistic about the singularity to being more skeptical and then maybe being a little bit more optimistic again. Like, what's happened that's made you kind of change your mind about
3: that? I guess my feelings about where my identity is, you know, who I am, and whether or not I would still be me if I were inside a computer, that those things have changed over time. As, for example, I've grown older and had to ask questions like, am I still me now? Am I still the me that I was 10 years ago? And also, as I've um, watched my daughter grow up, all of those things have changed my sense of the extent to which the lived experience of a conscious human being can be successfully simulated in silicon. And whether or not, having been transitioned to silicon, you would still be recognizable as you, or whether something important will have been lost. Not a soul, but rather some element that informs your cognition or your sense of self that is in some way inherently embodied.
2: You also have a story that you're doing for Neil Stevenson's Hieroglyph project. Do you want to tell us about that?
3: Yeah, I really need to get working on that one. I'm working Hmm. on a story about uh, burners, uh, people who go to Burning Man, who... Experiment with a 3D printer that they can leave on the playa on the, on the gypsum desert that harvests gypsum dust and uses it, uh, centers it into a a yurt over the couple of months that it takes for Burning Man to start using solar energy. And uh, so this autonomous habitat building, a 3D printer robot gives them the idea of building one that can print out using lunar regolith, the moon dust. And they land a, a lunar printer on the moon using private space exploration vehicles, and they direct its operations from a ground-based wiki that can bounce new messages to it, new firmware to it, or new, new instructions to it, using ham radios that bounce signals off the moon. And over the course of a generation, they direct its operations to build a lunar habitat that their grandchildren can move into.
2: And finally, are there any other new or upcoming projects you'd like to mention?
3: Um, well, Homeland is the sequel to Little Brother, and that'll be out in February. I'll be on tour with that as well for three to four weeks, I think, and mostly in the, uh, on the West Coast, the Southwest, and the South. Those of people who followed my tour this time around will know that I stuck to the Northeast a lot. I actually got the last plane out of Boston, uh, before the hurricane hit. And my publicist and publisher have said, you know, we're going to try and keep you in warm places that are unlikely to have extreme weather events during the uh, the next tour because the last thing to d- you want to do when you're on these tightly scheduled tours is to get snowed in so if you live in the south uh or the southwest or the west coast keep watching the space
2: all right great so Cory Doctorow thanks so much for joining us on geeks guide to the galaxy thanks guys and that was our interview so thanks so much to Cory Doctorow for joining us on the show and as we mentioned for our panel today we'll be discussing sex in science fiction and we're joined by a special guest geek, Laura G. Duncan. She holds a degree in medical anthropology with a focus on sexual health. Her talk, Hey, Where's My Robot Girlfriend?, has been covered by Time Out New York, The Village Voice, and New York Magazine. She'll also be a featured speaker at this year's South by Southwest, discussing sexual technologies and what medicine might be able to learn from sex robots. So, Laura, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me.
2: And I think we're going to start out and just talk about some... Examples of people having sex with robots from science fiction that are prominent or kind of stick in our minds. The first thing that kind of comes to mind for me is Isaac Asimov's robot novel, *The Naked Sun*. This is a a sequel to his novel *The Caves of Steel*. It's sort of a murder mystery, and a human has been murdered apparently in a locked room with a robot, and the robot is now kind of had its brain fried because maybe it violated the first law against harming humans, or some something weird is going on. But, so, in the course of investigating this murder, the main character is questioning one of the women, and it turns out that this robot was her lover, and there's just this scene where she describes how the robot could become sexually aroused at will, just kind of like flipping on a light switch, uh, and how it was just the, the perfect lover because all it cared about was pleasing her and protecting her and being attentive to her, and that just all that was sort of the first. Exposure I had to the idea of really especially particularly a male sex robot. I think female sex robots are a lot more common in science fiction, but that just sort of struck me as just how how it was described this in such a positive way this sexual interaction with the robot
0: yeah i th- I think what you say about the issue of gender and sex robots is really interesting because as I think about a lot of the examples that I think about and I use in my talks and my research is a lot of them are female sex robots, and I think you see that a lot, the assumption that female androids necessarily have, if not sex, then intimate relationships with humans, friendships, love affairs, Um, and that's more rare in male representations of robots. So, But one of the big ones is Data and Tasha Yar, of course, from Star Trek The Next Generation. I think one of the interesting examples of that is that Data, though very obviously a robot and his robotic nature is a huge plot point on the show, is actually incredibly human-like. He's indistinguishable from a real human in many ways. So I think a lot of the portrayals of robotic sex can seem a little out there when they're a robot that Looks like a robot where you can see all the gears and data and Tasha Yar provide this really interesting example of, well, what happens when the boundaries between what is technology and what is human start to blend? So I really like that example. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's a good pinpoint for people who maybe have not thought about these issues before or are unfamiliar or to whom sex robots is a totally out there topic is that this is a relatively mainstream example of this. That people really love. I think Data and Tasha's relationship for many people is very emotionally rewarding.
1: (laughs) There actually are like tons of science fiction stories about sex bots. Um, I mean, Charles Strauss's recent novel, um, Saturn's Children, it's it's about a sex bot. One of the things that's sort of a recurring theme in the sex bot story in science fiction is the reformed sex bot. There's these androids um, that are created for the purpose of being sex bots, but then at some point, you know, they sort of achieve their freedom f- through whatever means, and then they, so now they're an android that was built for sex, but then now they've become something else. I actually published a story by Cat Rambo called "Long Enough and Just So Long," which is about a, a reformed sex bot. Not not to say that uh, being interested in sex means you have to be reformed, but uh, you know, <laughs> no longer former. It's just like, let's just, let's just say former former sex bot. Yeah. And just the prevalence of sex bot stories, whether uh, former or not, um, you know, is is interesting because uh, actually at some point, uh, you know, one of my publishers was talking to me about doing a sex bot anthology. And I was like, well, and, th- and the thing is, it's like you could definitely do an interesting anthology on that subject. But the question is, you know, would people who buy a sex bot anthology actually get out of that what they're hoping for? You know, like unless you make <laughs> it sort of an erotica sex bot anthology, I'm not quite sure that uh, <laughs> most of the audience would be satisfied.
0: This fascination with robots often comes out about robots sort of enacting very strong emotional states. So it seems like what people are either interested in or scared of, you know, they're scared of the murderous robot or the soldier robot, and they're scared of the, or interested in the sex bot.
2: It was striking me, Laura, when you, you actually showed that clip during of Data and Tosh, you from your in your talk, and it was striking me how nervous Data seems and, and how human. He seems, and it seems, and I, I agree that, yeah, that there's this tendency to, to just make sex robots basically just people w- rather than sort of just like, like a vibrator that's shaped like a human being. And that we're a long, I think a long way off from strong AI, you know, what I mean, actually self-aware robots. So we're going to go through, I think a very long period where the robots are basically just machines. So I, I think, you know, that that's really what we should be focusing on first is just how are people going to relate to these. Machines that they have sex with that aren't conscious or have any feelings or anything like that.
1: There's a story I read uh, years ago, and I I don't know if it was ever published, because it didn't quite work, but it was really interesting. And the whole idea was, once we were capable of making sex bots, uh, someone would try to corner the sort of pedophile market and, you know, make sex bots designed for them. On the one hand, it's sort of abhorrent to even think about. But on the other hand, well, if you're going to make a sex bot, fulfill this need that this subset of the population has, at least they're not going to be then hurting children. They would be taking out their urges on on a robot instead. But, I mean, I, I, if you sort of further extrapolate on the idea, I think it would be interesting in terms of uh, using them for rehabilitation of all other sorts of things. I mean, not only, you know, violent sexual offenses, but also just for people with uh, sexual dysfunction and whatnot. It seems like there's a resistance to the idea of having sex with robots that I run into a lot. I mean, the
2: the most, the example that sticks in my mind the most is when I was a kid, I was talking to some friends about Westworld, which I actually have never seen, but the way they were described, it's sort of like it's Michael Crichton, it's sort of like Jurassic Park, except with uh, a Western theme rather than dinosaurs. But I guess there are sort of like bordello prostitute robots that that, um, tourists can have sex with. And one of my friends said, I would never have sex with a robot. Like, how do you know it's not just going to chop your dick off? it struck me just as, as silly at the time because i'm um, like presumably that that's a sort of design flaw that would be ironed out in the prototype stage
0: yeah i think that brings up a good point no one wants to be the beta tester <laughs> <laughs> so that's the lesson we can take away from this i think that's really true a lot of people who come to my talks and this is these are the people who talk to me afterward definitely seem to come because it's this sort of wild thought for them that they could never imagine. And I'm I'm a little bit in that same camp too, that I don't know if you presented me with a sex robot tomorrow how I would feel about it. I think there's a couple things going on here. One of the biggest things I think is that robots inherently have trouble with variability. That's sort of the big sticking point with robots. Necessarily they are programmed to do a specific amount of things in response to a specific amount of situation. So vulnerability, improvisation, those are not things that robots are especially good at. And I think you see that a lot in science fiction. There's, you know, a lot of plots are moved forward because the robot can't complete this task that they weren't programmed for or suddenly encounters a scenario that's outside of their programming. And that, and I think variability is something that people tend to really consider valuable in sex, you know, not having that sort of not knowing what a partner's going to do next, not knowing how the responses are going to go, um, having that ability to improvise. So I think that's one thing why people may have trouble imagining what it would be like to have sex with a robot.
2: That, I mean, that kind of makes me think of the movie The Lawnmower Man, which is not about sex robots, but it's sort of about VR-mediated sex. And there's this scene where they kind of, the characters. They, got, they put on these bodysuits suits and um, visors and things, and they go inside the computer, and they have sex inside the computer, and then their avatars kind of melt into each other, and it's portrayed as being just this transcendent sexual experience. It's, like, better than any sex you could ever have.
1: You know, I, I don't remember Lawnmower Mower Man that well, but, I mean, that brings to mind, uh, to me, Strange Days. that has this technology that you can sort of uh, record your thoughts or something like that, but then some... People figure out a way to use it to, like, sort of transfer the thoughts from one person to another. And so, like, you could actually have sex with a person while you're, you know, ha- and you have sort of a feedback loop going. So you can sort of achieve that same sort of uh, thing that you're talking about, like in Lawnmower Man, where, like, you know, you end up having in a- an ideal experience uh, because, you know, you're getting the feedback from your partner.
2: Well, actually, in um, Jonathan Weatham's first novel, um, Gun With Occasional Music, you can have your you, these implants put in that, that sort of reverse your sexual experience so you experience you know so if you're a man you experience female sexual uh, experiences and vice versa and the main character he had done this with his girlfriend and then she had dumped him and and left and so he's he still has her like sexual responses but I think that that raises the issue if you can manipulate the pleasure centers of your brain with that much sophistication I think it raises the issue of whether sex becomes obsolete entirely there's this story by Larry Niven called death by ecstasy And in that, you can just have sort of shunts put into the pleasure centers of your brain and then just plug yourself into a wall outlet and just experience any level of, you know, just dial any level of pleasure you want. And the main character, at the beginning of the story, he finds out one of his friends has ostensibly committed suicide, but he suspects that it was murder. You know, but it it turns out that if you just plug someone into the wall uh, against their will and leave them like that for long enough, at that point, uh, they're kind of addicted to it and they can't summon up the willpower to unplug themselves and they'll just starve to death.
1: That actually uh, kind of seems like a, a real danger. Like, you know, once any kind of technology like this is uh, does become possible, because like, yeah, I mean, if you can just sort of mentally decide to have an orgasm or whatever, it's like, you know, yeah, that's a dangerous thing. It, it's sort of the same thing even with just like the idea of, of of a sex bot or whatever. Like, if you have access to that as like a teenager or something like, it's going to make it even harder for you to actually learn how to have healthy actual sexual relationships or even just emotional relationships because if, you're going to, if you grow up and, and when, you're, when you first have sexual urges and you can just, you know, sort of enact them with a robot, that's going to hamper your ability to actually interact with real people later on.
0: Yeah, and I do think a lot of these stories, especially that we've just been talking about, provide a really great example of the ways in which science fiction stories In imagining either future worlds or new technologies, they're really providing a mirror onto our current society and our current anxieties about sex and reproduction, like virtual reality sex. Um, In Demolition Man, they actually very explicitly say that it was created as a response to the disease rate, that Mm -hmm. it was just too dangerous to have sort of physical connections through sex anymore because of the levels of disease, which is something, you know, that's a very Contemporary common concern about sexuality. And when you're talking about uh, the death by ecstasy story, that sounded to me the moment I was, I was thinking about that is all of the debates that are going on. And, and this is my personal research interest, but about genetic engineering in medicine, especially around uh, sexual enhancement. So I think we're at a point right now in a lot of our technologies where we've moved away from using technology to normalize bodies and experiences saying well you know your arm is broken and now it's not broken anymore so that's that's normalization into optimization which is well your arm is not broken and we've put this implant in your brain that provides you with endless pleasure so you already have things like the recreational use of mental performance enhancing drugs is hugely common and that's a an everyday use of Optimization technologies, you know, Viagra. That, like we were talking about before, Viagra is something that I think people would have said, you know, oh, that sounds like science fiction. <laughs> um, and is something that's become incredibly common. And when I've been doing this research, it's one of the things that interests me is disparities. In that we already have this big digital divide in our world. That once you get into, especially sexual optimization. Is that, are we going to move from a world where the disparities are? So if some people are sick and some people can afford to use technologies to be healthy, to some people are sick and some people have a bionic genitals. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking this product, the, uh, the forever war. One of the most interesting things for me in that book, and maybe this just shows what my bias is, is the fact that they portray like a state sanctioned homosexuality. As a response to like a rising birth rate,
1: uh, yeah, actually, that that reminds me too of uh, uh, Robert J. Sawyer has a series. Um, uh, it's called the Neanderthal Parallax series, uh, but the first book's called *Hominids*, and so it's basically this world where Neanderthals had not died out, and and humanity had never actually arisen to become the dominant species. And so, in the Neanderthal society, they actually um, end up using uh, state-enforced uh, homosexuality as a way to control the population as well, basically, you know, it's like they do have uh, female partners as well, but they don't live with them when they're ovulating or whatever, when they could get pregnant. But then they also have a male partner, so they sort of have a male and female partner, um, and they just live with them part of the time as, as a way to control population.
2: One of the things I always have really liked about science fiction is how you do get these completely different portrayals of what Sexual mores might be like in the future, and I think there's been a strong presumption among most science fiction writers that I've read that sexual mores will continue to be more liberal, usually vastly more liberal, into the future, and that polyamory, you know, will become commonplace, etc. Uh, there was just a story I read by Jeffrey Landis called "The Sultan of the Clouds," where it's just normal on um, Venus. Uh, it's just normal for all relationships to be triad relationships where each of the partners is 20 years younger. And when the elder member of the triad dies, you induct a younger one. And, and, and so you sort of have three people cycling through all the time.
0: I think, I don't know if this says something good or bad about me, but listening to that story. was like, man, sounds like my last relationship. <laughs> and I do think a lot of, in terms of the future of our society is that there's a lot of discussion of these sort of new, especially around technology, about where are we going, what does the future hold, and people utilizing science fiction to try and um, sort of maybe run practice tests about what would a society look like if it embraced these kind of sexual values as opposed to our current ones. And I like to, uh, I think something that's been really useful to me is. To talk about the flying car paradox, so the flying car paradox says that the reason we don't have flying cars is not because necessarily because of the technology. The technology is not all that far out of our grasp. It's that the structure of our society, you know, from the very, very mundane things like how our roads are policed and built to the sort of larger issues of how we relate to one another, that the structure of society—that is actually the bigger hurdle to prevent to getting flying cars. And I think that totally applies to sex as well. It's not necessarily the question doesn't become when are we going to have a fully polyamorous society? When are we going to have state-sanctioned homosexuality? When are we going to all have a robot girlfriend? The question is when is our the rest of our society going to get to a place where? For example, robots are just so commonplace and integrated into our lives that it's not that big a leap to conceptualize having sex with them.
2: But, uh, that kind of reminds me, yeah, I mean, William Gibson has this famous saying that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And I guess there's this tendency in science fiction to think of, you know, in the year X we have these values, and in the year X plus 100 we have these values. But, of course, there's this whole spectrum of values today from very, you know, what I would consider very retrograde attitudes to much more progressive attitudes. And that, yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that moving into the future, there's likely still going to be that range. The median, say, may shift, but it's not like every society has a uniformity of values.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things, that, especially these books that, that utilize um... – So homosexuality as the alien, like The Forever War, which is a book I I actually really enjoy. But that sort of utilized that as the surprise. The attitude a little bit when I'm reading them, I always get a little bit uncomfortable because it seems to assume that the reader's going to be straight. One of the hard lines to walk, I think, when you're writing science fiction or when you're watching it and you do see portrayals of different sexual values is In order to portray them as an interesting thought experiment, what would a society like that look like without assuming that for all of your audience that this is necessarily going to be some wild, inconceivable thought that polyamory is necessarily completely alien to all of your readers? Because I think that can really alienate a lot of people if you're consistently using homosexuality as the weird alien way to live.
2: Actually, I was kind of curious, Laura. I mean... Because I, I, I sort of, I'm sort of conflicted because, I on the one hand, I like to think of myself as being very open minded and progressive about sex, but then on the other hand, you have a lot of the depictions of really, op- sort of quote unquote open minded sex, like Heinlein and and Pierce Anthony. I mean, there's this um, general feeling that the late stage Heinlein is just kind of bad stories. That you just have lots of stories about a guy, sort of an old white man, writing stories about how awesome it is to for young teenage girls to have sex with old white men and on the one hand it's really liberal but on the other hand it's kind of not
0: a lot of and i don't have a totally perfect answer because i think it's something that i constantly work through as i read stuff a lot of science fiction is escapism and i i love a good escapism you know give me a story about getting put in a rocket ship any day and i will be psyched but Occasionally, there does seem to be this type of escapism that completely ignores privilege, either privilege of the writer or privilege of the perceived audience, that sort of seems like just someone writing a fantasy of a world in which they don't need to be held responsible for their actions or the scenarios they put other people in. I'm more interested in sort of the stories that really explore how these new sexual worlds happen and i think that the classic one is margaret what's the handmaid's tale that that could very easily have been a story written from the point of view of the the head of the household who not only has a wife that provides all of the sort of domestic social um needs but also has a handmaid that provides the reproductive capacity that could i could very easily see that be written as a story from that head of the household's point of view that I would have really not enjoyed. But instead, because it's written from the perspective of the sort of downtrodden class, it's written from the handmaid's perspective, it becomes, I think, a much more interesting and well-rounded story. And so I think that's sort of the line that cuts through for me when people are imagining these new sort of uber-progressive sexual worlds is do they take this sort of 360 view of the society or is it just sort of a god view of one person talking about how amazing it is for them in their privileged position to have access to all of this incredible sex those i just don't find besides being problematic i just don't find to be very interesting stories
2: i I did actually i wanted to go back to something john said because he, he was saying that you know if say teenage boys had unrestricted access to sex bots that that would uh, sort of stunt their maturity. I'm sort of skeptical of that premise. Uh, it seems to me that if you had uh, a sex robot who could sort of teach you about sex and teach you how to put on a condom and all this stuff, I see more upsides to downsides.
1: Well, I, I think you're assuming a very sophisticated sex robot. I mean, I think it in- depends entirely on the, on the sophistication of the robot. Like, if it's an android, like if it's like a data-level uh, android... You know, maybe what you're saying is, right, I'm thinking more like something more in the near future that would be possible to have that would be more like a sort of animated real doll or something, you know, something that could sort of give some, you know, not just be laying there, but have some sort of activity to it, but is effectively a real doll. You know, it's like, I mean, I I guess you can sort of just even imagine, you know, having a teenager have access to a real doll and um, imagine what that could do to their development.
2: Well, Laura, do you have any... I guess real dolls right now, I think, are so expensive and rare. I don't know how much data there is on it, but do you have any sense of how the the sort of sex robots, such as they are, that exist right now, are affecting people?
1: Actually, should we say briefly what the hell real dolls are? It's <laughs> just for people. Are we just we're just
2: assuming briefly. a level of perversion yeah. on our audience? <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, uh, okay, I mean, a, a real doll is a, a thing that exists right now, which is basically a, a doll that you have sex with. Uh, that's very. It looks very much like a real person. It's very, you know, it's. Um, I don't know exactly. It's made out of kind of a sort of plastic, and it's, it's much more lifelike than a blow-up doll or whatever else would have existed 10 years ago, whatever.
0: And So real dolls are, you're right, that they are, they're they extremely expensive. They tend to run a couple thousand dollars. I think most of them, at least the most popular company, makes them with sort of steel skeletons with a silicone skin. I feel bad for all, all of your readers who are had not heard this conversation and currently just Googled real doll in Google image mm-hmm. search app. So, uh, sorry about that guys so I think you're right that there's not a lot of data and there's not a lot of people talking about how this affects sexual maturity partially because I think most people assume that these are free thinking consenting adults who are buying these things I tend to fall on the side of and and this may just be me personally I, I see people getting swept up in sort of panics about you know you hear this a lot what are vibrators doing to the children of our nation and what is pornography doing to people and it tends to a lot of that i think does tend to come from sort of a very moralistic sex panic side of things but with real dolls one thing i do find interesting is like like you mentioned they are incredibly realistic looking but they really do for a lot of people i think especially people who are not especially attracted to to sexual technology they really fall pretty deep into the Uncanny Valley. So the Uncanny Valley is something I talk about a lot in my talk, um, and I'm sure especially the audience of this podcast probably knows quite well what it is. But just very briefly, the Uncanny Valley is a graph made by a theorist, It's actually also a roboticist, that says as robots become increasingly human-like, our feelings of positivity towards them increase so the example I use is you look at an industrial robot, say a robot that's meant to build cars, and like you don't most people don't really have all that positive emotional feelings towards that robot. And then you meet C3PO. So C3PO of Star Wars is one of the most beloved characters in science fiction. But there's no mistaking that this is a robot. It's just a robot that looks a little bit more like a human. So you can see as you get more and more looking like a human, you develop more and more positive feelings or sort of normal human feelings towards these portrayals uh, of robots. The Uncanny Valley is between sort of a C-3PO-esque robot and a fully-fledged human. Is this dip in sort of the positive feelings towards these representations, which is when something is so close to looking human, but just not quite. The Uncanny Valley says that that just not quite human actually provokes this feeling of revulsion or creepiness in a lot of viewers. And and that's really what roboticists are working on right now is really perfecting human movements. But the interesting thing about the Uncanny Valley is in many ways, the sexual technology projects have to contend less with it because I think... Arousal is a really strong emotion, and people can overlook a whole <laughs> in the the guise of wanting, whether this be companionship or you know you have all these stories about people who have been fooled by chat bots and who have you know gotten a a girlfriend who they talk to all the time, but she just lives in Russia. no big deal. I've never seen her, and it's actually a chat bot, and people really do develop these feelings. I think it's because the desire for intimacy, the desire for sex a lot of times can, like, sort of leap us over the uncanny valley. Sometimes the reason that people are uncomfortable with this is a lot of the portrayals of sexual technology projects and sex robots are incredibly servile. And that's for a couple of reasons. I do think it has to do with, you know, the connection of servile sexuality to idealized notions of femininity and all of that. But I also think it has to do... Almost maybe more so with the fact that a lot of these projects are commercial projects. So you want to build a robot and to sell a robot that's going to provide for its owners every whim and cater to all of their sexual needs. You very rarely see representations of sex robots where people are like, man, you know, I really want my sex robots to, like, call me out when I'm being an idiot and challenge me intellectually. You just really rarely see that, and I think it's because of the commercial issue. Companies and people imagining these projects just don't want to have someone spend thousands of dollars on a sex robot, only to have this robot that has, you know, incredible intelligence and amazing sexual skills get bored with their human partner Mm -hmm. and get up and walk out one day.
2: Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, going back to something John said earlier, do you have any sense of, you know, say you have people who have just really totally socially unacceptable sexual proclivities, you know, say violence or whatever, if you were to provide them with a robot that they could enact that upon, would that make it less likely or more likely or not make any difference about whether they would then go on to do that to actual human beings? Is there any sort of social science research that's relevant to that?
0: That's an incredibly hard question, and part of me hesitates to even answer it because I probably completely unqualified to do so. There has been work done on pornography viewing and this whole ideology about, well, does viewing pornography make people more likely to do the things they see in it? And I think generally most of the studies that have been you know done well and have good uh, rigorous methodology have basically said that it's a case-by-case thing. It's if you're the kind of person who maybe would want to enact these things in real life anyways, that perhaps enacting them with a robot or watching uh, representations of them might sort of inspire you. But they said a lot of people actually that these are emotional desires, that they're not totally conscious of where they're coming from, and that enacting them in real life has never been an interest. And for those people, it actually has no effect you know, you can, you can have sex with a trillion robots and that, that will have no effect on, on what happens in the real world.
2: I mean, it's it seems like if you were to just introduce sex robots into society as it is now, that a lot of people would be like, no, that's cheating. You know, your partner says, no, you're cheating on me if you're, you know, using a sex robot. But I could see that change, you know, as peop- as they just become normalized, that people just look at it as, as another apply- a household appliance, sort of, you know, like And the analogy I would draw is that like cooking together as a family, I think lacked a lot of romance when you have to do that or you're gonna starve to death. Whereas when the microwave comes along, then I think there's a lot more romance to preparing a special meal together, because you can choose whether to do it or not. And by analogy with sex, if one person's just not in the mood, you know, if if one person if, if, if neither partner is dependent on their partner, for sex, then the choice to have sex together is more of a free choice and therefore more valuable in a way.
0: It is also an awesome thought experiment to think about, well, what if someone just airdropped a whole bunch of of sex robots into our current society? And I think that the example you were giving really allows us to, I think sex robots would, would allow us to think critically on this sort of social... Pressure that when you're in a partnership with someone romantically, that you somehow have ownership over their entire private sexual being. That somehow every fantasy, every sexual thought they have somehow also belongs to you. And I think that's troubling, not only in the obvious that people you know deserve privacy even when they're in partnerships, but I think it causes a whole lot of of pain to people. Is that I, I've worked as a sexual health educator for a long time and people get very very concerned about what their partners are thinking in a way that does not serve anyone because that's not something you can ever know and I wonder if sex robots would provide this really interesting way for people to start to sort of enhance their sexualities within a partnership while still Uh, supporting without needing to somehow have ownership over a partner's, you know, private sexual thoughts or interests or experiences. If you can imagine someone, you know, giving their partner like a big kiss and being like, okay, go have fun with the sex robot. See you in half an hour, honey. Um, That that seems very charming to me. (laughs) And it seems like that would be a very stable way to be. It seems like it might complicate that concept that we all have to be everything to our partners all the time, constantly.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, I could definitely see partners who are open-minded being able to use uh, something like a sex bot to, like, really experiment and, and, you know, do different kinds of things that you would never, probably never try otherwise. Like, you know, if you had to actually bring in a third person um, to do it, whether it's uh, for homosexual uh, experimentation or whatever or you know even or if it's just to have a, a that third person there but the idea of having a robot where you know you and your partner that you're in a relationship with you can have this third person there you know quote unquote person you know that could open up a lot of possibilities for for actually strengthening the relationship because it's something that you could do together but um i I, I definitely can see it being uh causing lots of problems and not 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 everyone's gonna be open to you know either that or um having their partner you know engaging with something like that solo and uh i mean because i mean you can think about how many partners are not okay with their with their partner like even looking at porn when they're in a relationship so i guess one one thing
2: i want to bring up is that i think you know when you imagine a sex robot you sort of imagine a really good looking human being right because i think that's what most people would be interested in but there are people who have very odd sexual dispositions. And I mean, there was just, I don't know if you guys saw this news story, there was this guy who was arrested this year for the fourth time for publicly masturbating with a teddy bear. And uh, there was also this this woman who's sexually attracted to amusement park rides. And she like married this amusement, her favorite amusement park ride and like kind of orgasms when she rides it. And it's one thing if your partner, if the sex bot around the house is a human shaped thing, but you know, s- how are people going to respond if your partner's sex bot is a teddy bear or a monster truck or who even knows you know
0: i think that's really interesting something i talk a lot about in my talk is that especially within science fiction i think especially within science fiction movies and television just because there are more visual medium um there's this assumption that a lot of people i think a lot of people feel this way in general that sex robots are sort of this wild futuristic topic and people like to talk about it because it's sort of exploding our concepts of sexual values and how our society operates. But if you actually look at representations of robots that either have intimate relationships or have sex, especially in movies, especially in television, they're still actually portrayed as having incredibly conventional aesthetics and incredibly Eurocentric standards of beauty that almost all of them are white, almost all of them are slender. They're not just able-bodied, but they're super able-bodied. And I actually consciously, for my talk, try and collect examples of uh, robots that have sex or relationships that represent different standards of of beauty and different physical attributes. And it's incredibly hard. You also get almost all of, like we mentioned before, almost all female representations of robots are portrayed as as having sex or relationship and very few male representations of robots are and you also get more diversity with male representations of robots you have more robots that are older that are different races the examples i often give are rachel from blade runner who i actually dress up as for halloween um and you have her you have number six, uh, the Cylon from the new Battlestar Galactica, who basically, you know, are supermodels. Um, in Battlestar Galactica, you get, you get Boomer, who's portrayed as an Asian-American woman. Ghost in the Shell, the robot there, is portrayed as Japanese and a lesbian. Um, there's one episode of Torchwood, the Doctor Who spinoff, in which there is a, a African-American cyberwoman who's Yanto's girlfriend. But so it's sort of the the exceptions make the rule. And I always think that it's sort of a, a failure on the part of science fiction writers and creators and viewers that in creating a sex robot, what you're necessarily doing is you're not hemmed in by all of these biological and evolutionary constraints that have been put on the human body. You know, you could give it a trillion arms and it could have five legs and it could have polka dotted skin and you still get constantly sex robots that look like european supermodels so i think that would be really interesting if people started exploring what would people really choose to have their sex robots look like i mean i think like set set a scene of watching people shop for their sex robot
2: there's actually there was this um rachel swirsky story called Erosphilia Agape. And there's a memorable scene in there where uh, it's about a woman who constructs a partner, a male partner for herself. And there's a scene where there's just all the legs and penises and arms and torsos and things all just hanging in this workshop. And she, you know, goes around picking the different pieces she wants. And just the way it's described is just very, very vivid. It's kind of what you're talking about there. Alright, so then just the last thing I wanted to mention was there's this really amazingly good story called Day Million by Frederick Pohl about a society in the unimaginably far future and it starts out and it says you know this is a story about a boy except the boy wasn't really a boy he was a robot <laughs> and it sort of goes on from there. and then and there's a girl but she wasn't really a girl she was kind of a wizard and, and there's all this stuff but it's essentially a love story where these two people meet and they kind of like each other and so they just exchange essentially kind of vr simulacra of each other And that this is how love works in the future, is that just if you meet someone you like, you just sort of exchange codes with them. And then you can summon up an avatar of them to talk to or have sex with or whatever at any point in your life. And then they just go their separate ways. And that's this is how all romance works in the future. All right, cool. So we had a whole thing we were planning to do about sex with aliens, but we're way over time already. So I think we're going to have to save that for another day and start wrapping up this episode. So, Laura, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: And thanks again to Corey Doctorow for being our guest today. So it's only November, and we've already blown past our goal of 200 ratings on iTunes by the end of the year, and are now all the way up to 2:10. Big thanks to everyone who's rated us lately, and especially to those who've written us five-star reviews, including K.W. Reed, Batman 2200, Restaurant of the Mind Books, Amy Peakey, John Quima, Preston Zeller, B to the C, Matt Simon A. Michaels, Melsar 93 and Ozilla. Also, big thanks to Amy Peakey for becoming the 33rd person to contribute money to us using PayPal. To see a list of all the awesome people who have done that, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on PayPal. And that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or... DavidBarrCurrently.com Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment If you enjoyed this program tell your friends If you didn't enjoy it tell no one Thank you for listening